Hi there. Welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. If you're hearing this near when I'm recording it, then happy Advent. Merry Christmas. So today we're going to talk about a spiritual practice that you could argue is hiding in plain sight. It's a major theme of the Bible, which you think would flush it out of the shadows. It comes up in lots of great spiritual teachers' counsel. I mean, it's pretty hard to miss. And yet it's rarely practiced for reasons that we're going to try to tease out today. But it's not as if it's hard to do. And we're told it will drive our lives towards joy as much as any other thing. So I hope that's tantalizing. Along the way, we'll start with some very small-scale examples from just my last week, but then we'll dip into miracle stories and ways that great spiritual teachers suggest this could have large-scale impact. I'll go theoretical for a moment to let you know about a four-stage understanding of spiritual development that comes up from teachers all over the world, and we'll look at how this practice fits into it. I'll let you hear about a very fun story from a Latin American city along these lines. We'll take a brief tour into the world of these early mystics called the Desert Fathers and Mothers that we also touched on in the last episode. And we'll compare and contrast this practice to a really popular current practice that's really similar to this, but isn't it. Okay, before we launch in, though, let me mention that I lead a weekly online group around exactly these themes that might interest you. It has people from several countries. It's a lot of fun. I think you'll like it. It's Wednesday nights at 9 o'clock Eastern time. And if you'd like to hear more about it, uh, email us at mail at blueoceanfaith.org. Mail, like going through the mail, M-A-I-L at blueoceanfaith.org. All right, we good? Then kick us off, Ryan Hood, as we look at an easy joy hack. I find myself thinking about several mildly challenging moments for my mood that came up for me recently, all of which, as you'll see, were no big deal in and of themselves. But I think of them here because they all have the same spiritual upshot, and that for all the -the run-of-the-mill things they addressed, do strike me as more intriguing than you might think on the surface, maybe because most of our lives are in fact filled with run-of-the-mill moments. So I contend towards fear about finances. Now, God has faithfully, often to the naked eye, miraculously provided for my family and me for decades. And it's felt like living on faith for most of that time, and that's turned out to work just fine. But I have set times each month where I'll check in on our financial numbers, knowing that if I check in more than that, I'll just be anxious more than I'd like. So one of those times came up recently, and wouldn't you know it, our checking account was indeed quite a bit lower than I'd expected, and I had a familiar shot of fear. But then happily, I remembered one of the most basic spiritual moves there is. I'll be coy and tell you what it is in a moment. And I quickly felt better. And then not long afterwards, I remembered, or maybe God brought to mind, some substantial checks that wouldn't yet have cleared. And I did some internal math, and I realized that our account likely did have right about the amount I had expected it to have in the first place. This one spiritual move has recently helped me in all sorts of small ways, which again, are often trivial in and of themselves. Like, let me prove the point. Here's a trivial example. A sports team I root for had a tough loss, which left me mildly bummed out. Until I remembered this spiritual move and then had a joyful rest of my day. Uh, I mean, hey, I saw a movie which brought up existential questions and depressed me about parts of my life. And I remembered the spiritual move and immediately had thoughts about things I actually could do in my life, which could actually improve it in real ways. And then I also had a comforting perspective about whatever had felt discouraging. All right, I'll spill it. Here's the move. The move is praising God for, or maybe in, we'll talk more about that in a moment, in all circumstances. It comes up a lot in the Bible, and it turns out that it has what to me are intriguing applications, both in the faith and contemplative spirituality traditions. 
So there are familiar passages along this line, like Psalm 23.3. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. God lives where we're praising him. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. through 18. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks at all times, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or the great story of 2 Chronicles 20, where a bunch of enemy armies are about to wipe out Israel, and King Jehoshaphat prays in terror, only to have this prophet named Jehaziel give God's response that Israel won't even have to fight to get the victory they need. So Jehoshaphat, believing that, puts a team of singers who praise God in front of the armies, so that must feel vulnerable to those singers, and the enemy troops uh, hear the praising and then all kill each other, as with so many Hebrew Bible stories. You can decide how you feel about that upshot. And Israel takes all their booty. Praising before the battle wins the battle. So again, the classic advice is either to praise God in all circumstances or the more controversial advice to praise God for all circumstances. Either seems great to me. You can choose your favorite. Now, what makes praising God for hard things controversial is that people feel weird praising God for things it feels to them, like, to their perspective, the devil did. And yet the biggie praise proponents do tend to like for more than in, nonetheless, as mostly do I. So just to take a moment on that, even as I think praising God in all circumstances isn't a bad thing at all, the case for praising God for all circumstances is a biblical one, if you're so inclined. So Habakkuk, may have been a little while since you read that book, Habakkuk gets commanded to praise God for all these horrible circumstances, and then is told to watch and be amazed as God does great things to respond to his praises, including lifting up the brutal Chaldean army of the day in service of this stuff. So God does all that stuff. We should praise God for it, is the point in Habakkuk. But either way, let's think about this from a contemplative point of view. What praising God for or in the middle of things that trouble you accomplishes is centering you in the present moment. You're welcoming this moment. It's the classic contemplative move. So taking a step back for a moment for some perspective, the great spiritual teachers across many spiritual traditions have remarkable agreement around a four-part process of spiritual growth, where we all start with what you might call reactivity. That's the baseline human condition, being reactive, where things hit us almost as if we're a raw nerve ending and we just respond. That's where we all start, we're told. Some people have called this reactivity victim consciousness. Everything barrages us and makes us feel like a victim. And then we're trying to get to this good thing. Psychologists might call it flow, where we're so caught up in what's happening in the world or in our lives or what God's doing that we're just just going along in a wonderful flow. Uh, John Cassian, one of the Desert Fathers, we'll talk more about them later, calls this purity of heart. That's the good thing we're trying to get to, where we're so pure of heart we see God in flow. Or Eastern traditions, I think this is not far from what they would call enlightenment. That's the thing we're trying to get to. And there are two means by which we can get there. One, you would call faith. That's where we want stuff in our lives from God. The other, you might call spirituality. That's where we're centered in the present moment of what already is. And both those two things seem to have an effect working together to take us from reactivity to flow. Okay, that's the spirit of it. So let's go back to the starting place for all of us unenlightened people. Reactivity or victim consciousness, where everything seems like an attack, where everything victimizes us. The premise is that the devil, the so-called god of this world, always wants us to feel under siege. Maybe you can see how persistent praise in all circumstances combats that powerfully. 
this particular hard thing, if we were to praise God for a given hard thing, we are saying not only isn't victimizing me, but through praise of a loving God is part of God's plan to work all things for my good. So the surprise of this perspective is that while we're tempted to blame the devil for the hard circumstance, maybe what this understanding of the devil most wants is to distract us from praising God right in the circumstance. That way we'll firmly stay in reactivity and the devil has us. So it's not the circumstance that's the devil's work. It's the devil making sure we do not praise God for it. That's the devil's work would be this point of view. This is why some spiritual teachers make the case that praising God in all circumstances is the central starting point for the spiritual journey that will get us where we need to go, that will move us towards purity of heart, flow, enlightenment. It's the central practice that will empower our journey out of reactivity and victim consciousness. It's the on switch, as it were, that moves us into a world of God working for us and out of a world where anything we hope for in our life has to be something we pull off on our own, where everything's on our own shoulders. It can make us feel vaguely doomed. And praising God in this way is an intriguing way to practice mindfulness, as we aren't just stuffing down the hard thing, but we're acknowledging it and sitting with it in God's presence. So thinking back to my shot of fear when it appeared we had so much less money in our checking account than I thought we had. It's sort of a stimulus response, right? Less money directly leads to shot of fear. But happily, I didn't just run with that reactivity, that victim consciousness. In that instance, at least, I praised God, both for our financial situation, even if it was worse than I thought it was, and I praised God for the fear I felt at that moment. I praised God that he would use the fear for good, and that he had a good plan for our finances. And I did find real peace rather than just battling the fear for the rest of the day. And as I mentioned in this instance, the problem itself did get quickly resolved. Some famous commands of the Bible go back to this process of leaving victim consciousness behind. So fear not, for instance, or rejoice in the Lord always from Philippians. A common contemplative suggestion is to let things go, to stay in the present moment where all good things live, and persistent praise seems in the spirit. In John 10.10, Jesus says that he came to give whoever wanted it what he called abundant life. And I wonder if this praise stuff is at the heart of what he's saying. I mean, maybe it unlocks this sort of life as if it's pent up and ready to happen, but requires this kind of praise to release it. Or maybe this stuff will happen anyway, but this sort of praise helps us center ourselves in the present moment in a kind of trust that empowers our consciousness to relax and to experience the abundance that's already there. I mean, our checking account balance wasn't impacted by my praising, I don't think at least. No miracle money showed up that I'm aware of but my ability to feel the provision there was impacted. And lots of the benefits are benefits to our consciousness, to how we experience our lives, which is no small deal. How we experience our lives could loosely be called our lives. But I do find myself thinking about the Pentecostal tradition, where praise is definitely a big part of experiencing better circumstances. So some years back, a Pentecostal ministry called the Sentinel Group produced a couple of documentaries in which they traveled the world looking for towns that they felt had been dramatically helped by lots of prayer. They've seen some controversy since then, as perhaps some of the stories weren't as rosy as they represented. And other towns had setbacks since the videos happened. But the videos, called Transformations, are nonetheless a lot of fun if you like things like those videos. And you get some stories like this one in Almolonga, Guatemala, which are pretty fun. Here's a snippet of that section. Just 20 years ago, Al Malanga was a dark and dangerous place. Suffered from poverty, violence, ignorance, and besides that, 
alcohol was the main problem. If you would go to Almolonga 20 years ago in the morning, 7 a.m., and walk the streets of Almolonga, you would have encountered many, many men just lying on the street because they were totally drunk. We had many jails because there were so many problems. Chief of Police Donato Santiago recalls that people were always fighting. Officials built four jails, but even they couldn't contain the problem. Overflow prisoners were routinely bused to a nearby city. Domestic violence was especially pronounced. We kept fasting three or four days a week, and every Saturday we held a prayer vigil. And that was what I think opened the door. 1994, the last of Almolonga's four jails closed. The remodeled building is now called the Hall of Honor. For Police Chief Santiago, these are the good times. You don't have any jails in town now? No, nothing. Because you don't need them? No, because there's no people that, that do trouble. <laughs> Even the town's agricultural base has come to life. For years, crop yields around Almolonga suffered from a combination of arid land and poor work habits. But as the people have turned to God, they have seen a remarkable transformation of their land. And Almolonga became a fertile valley. It is so fertile that the land is so, so good, they produce the best vegetables. They get as many as three harvests per year. They sell their vegetables to Guatemala, south of Mexico, and El Salvador. Before the spiritual turnaround, growers were exporting four truckloads of produce a month. Now they leave town 40 times a week. Nicknamed America's Vegetable Garden, Al Malanga's produce is of biblical proportions. You have to see them to believe. A bit is four and a half pounds. A carrot is this size. It is, it is just... Unbelievable. <laughs> After seeing this video, I have two friends who traveled to Almolonga to see for themselves and reported back that, yes, they did grow carrots bigger than their arms there. Now, regarding this as having happened because of some people starting to pray, or as we're talking about today, to praise God for everything, that's obviously a step of faith. Yes, totally. I don't know the first thing about Almolonga apart from this video, so I'm sure there were all sorts of factors in whatever happened. But from the point of view of the praying people they interview, their prayer, at least compellingly, feels like the root cause. And that's not nothing. I remember my first day after reading a book that made the point that praising God for everything was the starting point of all good spiritual things. I was scheduled to play golf with my parents that day. I didn't play a whole lot of golf at that point. I only played once or twice a year when I saw my parents. And so I remember hitting the drive on the first hole, and I duck-hooked it into another fairway, into deep woods. And I remember walking over there and thinking, I'm supposed to be praising God for all circumstance. I praise you, God, that I duck-hooked this ball into deep woods. And then I, you know, chopped my way out, and I praise God for every shot out. And then I, you know, managed to hack it up onto the green, and I praise God for that. And I kept doing that throughout the day. And then I remember at one point, like towards the third hole, I had like a 50-foot double-breaking putt, for those of you who know golf, and I said, I praise you, God, for this 50-foot double-breaking putt, and I sunk it. And then I said, well, no, I really do praise you, God, for that one. That, that's easier. So thank you for sinking the 50-foot double-breaking putt. 
And my game totally turned around and I had just one of the best games I probably shot in my lifetime being totally out of practice. Everything was just cooking. And I remember my parents saying to me afterwards, wow, you're so much better than you used to be. What's your secret? And I think to myself, oh, I know the secret. I've got something that I can't even tell you. A praising God story that seems to tie both consciousness and circumstances in a very small scale, but perhaps charming way together. So maybe praising God for everything opens up the door for good things internally and externally. I don't know. Who knows? The Desert Fathers and Mothers, whom I talked about last time, these early great mystics who became the first Christian monks, had their own takes on this. While being humble and the opposite of grandiose, they nonetheless had a take about how this sort of praise that it seems to me would be a key part of big-scale transformation along the lines we looked at through the lens of St. Francis in the third episode that could sweep the world. So the Desert Fathers and Mothers had gone into the desert because they felt the church, this is like the fourth century, once Emperor Constantine blessed the church, had become an arm of the state. Some people feel that way now about churches. And they wanted to actually try to pursue God on God's own terms rather than just be a church thing that isn't really about God anymore, or so they felt. But their pitch was that they did this not, as it were, to judge other churchgoers. They actually, in their spirituality, were forbidden from judging at all. But actually, it's a move towards ultimate unity, where they could bring healing in the middle of division. And one way they did this was with praise when they felt insulted, which presumably came when these churchgoers they left threw shade their way, as if how to respond when you feel judged is a central spiritual act. And the starting point comes from regarding being insulted, a painful bad thing for most of us, as a gift, as something worth praising God for. Praise God that I'm being judged or that I feel judged, I feel insulted, because of its healing qualities for them and beyond. Here's a classic story along these lines, quoted in Thomas Merton's compilation called The Wisdom of the Desert. Once, he writes, there was a disciple of a Greek philosopher who was commanded by his master for three years to give money to everyone who insulted him. When this period of trial was over, the master said to him, now you can go to Athens and learn wisdom. When the disciple was entering Athens, he met a certain wise man who sat at the gate, insulting everybody who came and went. I have no idea why this wise person would do that. He also insulted the disciple who immediately burst out laughing. Why do you laugh when I insult you, said the wise man? Because, said the disciple, for three years I have been paying for this kind of thing, and now you give it to me for nothing. Enter the city, said the wise man. It is all yours. Abbot John, a desert father, used to tell the above story, saying, This is the door of God by which our fathers, rejoicing in many tribulation, enter into the city of heaven. This is the door of God by which our fathers, rejoicing in many tribulations, that's our point today, enter into the city of heaven. That's how they get into the abundance God wants to give in the city of heaven. If you could imagine a movement along these lines among spiritual people, maybe you could imagine changing a whole lot about today's divided political world. It could go big is sort of where the upshot of where this goes. So I've called this today an easy joy hack. And it's not rocket science, to be sure. It's a major theme in the Bible, all the more so as you get to the New Testament. Great spiritual teachers have brought this up over millennia. And it's pretty clear. It's not subtle. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks at all times, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's pretty direct. You praise God when your, to use contemplative language, ruminations slide into fear and concern and negativity. So in small things like my jolt of financial fear or my brief gloom over a sports team losing or a movie that briefly depressed me about my life, I should praise God right in the middle of those things and pay attention to what happens next like a good contemplative. 
That's a basic one-stop spiritual practice. So then what's kept this from catching on like wildfire? So let me back up for a minute. We have a popular current spiritual practice, which is really similar to this one, which has widely caught on for people who use things like meditation apps, along with many churchgoers. And that's to keep a gratitude journal. And that seems like a great thing to me. But oddly, it isn't the same thing as this. So a couple episodes back, I talked about ways to get past worrying. And I passed on the thought that most human lives are about 90% good stuff and 10% problems. Gratitude journals encourage us to daily notice the 90% as a way of having perspective on the bad 10% and not let the bad 10% sweep our emotional world away its direction. And again, that seems like a great and wise thing to me. By all means, notice what you're grateful for and what is good, what is in the 90%. Don't just get caught up in the things that are going wrong. But praising God in all circumstances drills right down into the negative 10%. It goes to the other side of the equation, as if there are riches to be found there. And the gift that brings is that first, we don't just shove down our fear or stress over the 10%, but we let it sit out in the open like a good contemplative would encourage us to do. And then even beyond that, to invite God directly into that, not by way, in this instance, of begging God to take the 10% away but by inviting faith in his work right into that space to sit in the promise that God works all things for our good and that as that scripture continues, it makes us more than a conqueror over the 10% as if there might be some good stuff right there in the hard stuff that we want to shove down. So in my initial attempts to move past how bummed out, say, the depressing movie made me, when I thought to myself, oh, I should praise God for feeling bummed out, and for the things in my life that are coming to mind as feeding into my feeling bummed out, not only did I end up cheering up relatively quickly, I also suddenly realized that I'd be advised to do some concrete things that would actually help in those areas of my life that fed into this gloomy emotion. Suddenly, it made me, in fact, more than a conqueror, granted in a very small instance. So back to the Desert Fathers. This is the door by which our fathers, rejoicing in many tribulations, enter into the city of heaven. As if praising God for everything keeps us innocent in this sense. As if it brings an open-hearted sense of always keeping our eyes open for what God is going to do next. And it helps us enter into the city of heaven to notice the abundance of an almolonga turnaround. So give it a try today. Maybe you're trying some contemplative time, and I hope you are. After you've sat for a bit, ask God if there's something you haven't praised God for and see what happens next. That's it for this week's Journey On. Thanks so much for being here. Great to have you. God bless you this week. And as I've mentioned, if a fun international online group focusing on these things interests you, let us know at mail at blueoceanfaith.org and we'll get you all you need to know. See you next time. 